Hello and welcome to the Gamers Tavern, episode number 49. This week we're adding to our campaign setting series, talking about the post-apocalyptic fantasy setting, Dark Sun. But before we get to that, we've got a lot of stuff to cover. We're running two, count them, two contests in the month of May, and you've got three chances to win each of them. The first is, well, if you haven't heard, our host Ross Watson is the writer of the storyline of the new game Warhammer 40k Regicide. This turn-based strategy game takes the basic rules of chess and adds a completely new layer of Warhammer 40k insanity on top of it. It's available on Steam now as a pre-release, but if you want codes, we've got three of them to give away. One will be given to someone who likes our Facebook page at facebook.com slash gamers tavern. One will be given to someone who follows us on Twitter at gamers tavern PC as in podcast. And one will be given away to someone who has reviewed us on iTunes. If you haven't done all three yet, you've only got until midnight on May 15th to do so. So get in gear. Now, we also have an insane prize as well, courtesy of Chris Avalone. Our last episode, episode 48 of the show, was our Kickstarter stretch goal level where Chris hosted an episode of the Gamers Tavern with a topic of his choice, and he chose the tabletop RPG that he designed to test the rules of the unreleased version of Fallout 3 called Van Buren. And those exclusive, never-before-seen-outside-the-developer's rules are available to three Gamers Tavern listeners. Do you want to own a piece of gaming history? All you have to do is send an email with the subject line Nuka Break to the address contest at gamerstavern.org and include your name, mailing address, and your best Fallout-themed haiku. Three of those haikus will win a copy of these notes from the production of Van Buren, the predecessor to Fallout 3. Once again, that's contest at gamerstavern.org with the subject line Nuka Break. Finally, if you're anywhere near the Houston area, and yes, I'm talking to our listeners in, even in Dallas, Austin, San Antonio, Louisiana, Fuck it, if you can get your ass to Houston on the weekend of May 22nd through the 25th, you want to be at Comic Palooza. Gamers Tavern host Ross Watson will be there running a bunch of games, and he will be on a crap load of panels, while Lauren Raber, our social media coordinator, and myself, Daryl Mott Jr., will be going around the convention, sucking up as much of the awesomeness as we can, and... Even the two of us aren't enough for everything that's going on under this one roof. Even if you have to stick just to the gaming track, there's more than four days worth of awesome stuff to do. And if you even want more, Gamers Tavern is going to be doing a live recording of an episode of the show on Monday afternoon. We'll be dragging as many guests as we can talk into coming to be on the show and talk about their experiences at the convention, taking questions from the audience, and we'll even be doing a few special giveaways. So go to comicpalooza.com to find out more. <sighs> Yeesh, okay. Without further ado, grab a drink from the bar and take a seat at the table in the corner, and we'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Are you looking for a new game to play? DriveThruRPG is the internet's largest source of role-playing games. Enjoy our game table episodes with Shadowrun, Dungeons & Dragons, or Mutants & Masterminds, and you want to join in? Or is World of Darkness, Battletech, or Fate more your thing? 
or maybe you just want to check out games from our guests like The Cursed and Shintar, The Savage World Settings. Just go to GamersTavern.org slash DriveThruRPG and you can have a new game to play in minutes. And they also have the largest selection of free games, source books, and starter sets anywhere in the world. Go to GamersTavern.org slash DriveThruRPG and support the show with every purchase. The Gamers Tavern Podcast is sponsored by Pinnacle Entertainment Group's Savage Worlds game, featuring Deadlands, 50 Fathoms, East Texas University, Weird Wars, and dozens of fantastic licensees. Savage Worlds is fast, furious, and fun. Welcome to the Gamers Tavern Podcast. I'm your host, Ross Watson. And I'm Daryl Mott Jr. And tonight we have Brandon Gensimer. Hey there. Joining us as a third chair host, along with a special guest, Mr. Timothy Brian Brown. Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome to the show, Tim. Thanks. So tonight we are going to be talking about a great setting called Dark Sun that came out quite a while uh, in the past. It's a really interesting setting. It's uh, been very unique, you could say. But before we jump into that, we're going to talk to our guests. Now, Brandon should need no introduction at this point, I think, right? Fingers crossed. <laughs> Daryl, I think, I, think, I think we can dispense with the gaming character sheet for Brandon at this point. Is that correct? Uh, well, you might want to update us on what he's been doing lately. Well, all right. You know, but this will be the very last time because he is now actually a producer on our show. <laughs> well, yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh, okay. But I thought so he's – Thought he might want to talk about the runner hub thing that we were no, talking no, about yeah, before yeah, the show. Let's 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 do it, but for the last time. So everyone, <laughs> all the listeners out there, this is the last gaming character <laughs> sheet we will require of Mr. Gensimer because he will then be actually on the show. So Outstanding. Brandon Gensimer, for the listeners, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you've been up to as a gaming character sheet? A little bit about myself. I uh <clears throat> got my start in gaming as a whole, working for Many of the ubiquitous publishers for the video game industry, uh, Electronic Arts, Activision, Blizzard, Tryon Worlds, uh, a little bit with Ubisoft, a small amount with NCSoft as well. I've done a lot of work on many different video games piecemeal. Uh, that's where a majority of my gaming character sheet, so to speak, comes from. Recently, though, I've also contributed to a couple different uh, RPGs. One of them is the uh, Malifaux Through the Breach uh, in Defense of Innocence. I did a uh, piece for them. It, that's it's still in defense of innocence, right, Ross? Did last I again? heard, last I heard, it's called in defense of innocence. I can't wait till it comes out. Honestly, <laughs> yeah, it's, not, it's awesome. Can it's I. fantastic, yeah. product. And uh, lately, I've been uh, one of the administrators and contributors for a uh, Reddit community for Shadowrun called Runner Hub. At time of recording, Runner Hub currently has uh, six hundred and seventy-seven individual unique users. At any one 24-hour period, about 150 to 200 are active at any one time. Uh, they have a GM community of more than 70. And we go through probably seven or eight, five to six man runs a day. And it's a, it's a really cool thing. There's some house rules and some really interesting stuff about it that I won't get into right now. But that's what I've been doing uh, lately. Now, and, quick, quick question about Runner Hub. Is there a preferred... Uh, well, actually, can you just tell us basically what your opinion is of the breakdown of the different editions of Shadowrun that they're playing there? At current, uh, the de facto standard is 5th edition. It is as it is the current edition. 
We also have things set up. I forgot the word for it. We also have stuff set up for uh, third and fourth edition as well. Uh, first and second, we haven't really dove into because getting the books is difficult and most people have moved on from those individual editions. But yeah, I wouldn't expect I personally, to see, I would not expect to see first and second edition guys, but third edition, fourth edition being represented. That's very cool. Yes. And I absolutely love having fourth edition guys to play with as <laughs> I, I vehemently detest some of the design decisions in fifth. And so being forced to play it kind of sucks, but <laughs> well, well, let's, let's, let's be very clear on the gamers tavern podcast. There's no hate. There is no hate. So, so you are disappointed with that's fair. To I am, say. There, there we go. I, I am disappointed with some of the design decisions made by uh, made in fifth edition. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Gensimer. And where can we find out more about you on the webs? You can find out more about me right here in gamers tavern. That's right. Uh, we will, Talking to you a little bit more about your Twitch channel and stuff later on, but I want to get to our special guest, Timothy Brown. And the reason why I wanted to get to him kind of second is because, uh, Tim, you have had a really long career in this gaming industry. You've actually been with... It's not that long. Well, I I want to say (laughs) it's long because you've been with a lot of really interesting companies and a lot of interesting properties during your time. So can you tell us as and the listeners about you and the things that you've done in the context of a gaming character sheet? Sure, absolutely. Um, I have been in the industry for a long time. I'm I'm not on the Mount Rushmore of gaming, but I know where to find it. And, uh, <laughs> the, my personal history goes all the way back into the into the deep dark 1970s, where as a kid I was playing uh, board games and whatnot from Avalon Hill and SPI and those those great companies like that, the hex and uh, cardboard counter games. And from those, I learned that the the third largest company making that sort of game happened to be just across my hometown. It was Little Game Designers Workshop, who at that time hadn't even ventured into the role-playing games. And I started hanging out there playing all those uh, board games that they were creating and doing playtesting for them, which was a really terrific way to grow up. Really quick, yeah. for, for, for the listeners, Game Design Workshop is the home of, of Traveler. Traveler, right. Uh, it was actually, unfortunately, sued out of existence by TSR during the Lorraine Williams era. Uh, essentially, essentially it was. That was a long time later. But yeah, in the uh, 70s, they were a bunch of college guys making a, a lot of fun board games and uh, and got early into, they were early adopters of the whole brand new role-playing game sort of experience and created the Traveler game that came out just as the Star Wars movie came out in what, 1976? That's right. So 77, 77, 77, yeah. Yeah, 77. Okay. Thank you. Sounds right. And, uh, you know, they, they thought, well, they've seen Dungeons and Dragons. They thought they could make their own thing and, uh, and made something that really was, uh, a unique experience and that it didn't, it didn't really mimic a whole lot of the role playing tropes like experience levels and whatnot from the Dungeons and Dragons game, but, but took it in a new science fiction kind of direction. And they had a tremendous amount of success with that. And, Mayday, Mayday, this is the free trader Beowulf. That's right. Yeah, little board games. That, that, that game just had so many fun, unique little experiences that were, that were you know, attached to the role-playing game, but were their own games in, in and of their own right. Like, the, like you're talking about Mayday there, the uh, board game where you could do the spaceship combat just as its own little game that you could use as part of the role-playing experience or play it completely separately. They had a game called Snapshot where the little cardboard counters were your individual science fiction adventurers running around in starports or on spaceships and shooting at each other. And the game was just just fraught with all these little 
little systems. But I think I'm getting into too much detail there. You want to know more about my, you know, I'll, I'll go in broader steps forward from there. So I, <laughs> All right. I, started, I started working at Game Designers Workshop literally as a kid. Published my first thing there when I was just 17 years old. Wow. And uh, Getting in the industry at 17, that is amazing. Yeah, well, really, I was playtesting games for those guys literally when I was like 12 years old. Wow. Yeah, I know it's crazy, just crazy, but but it was a ton of fun, and I and I ended up working for them for uh, 12 years as a as a, an employee at Game Designers Workshop, where I worked on the Traveler game quite a bit, also on uh, a separate science fiction game that came to be known as 2300 AD, that was a more hard science science fiction game, mm-hmm. and I also contributed early on to the uh, Space 1889 game, which Frank Chadwick is, is still publishing in, in new forms now as, as very much one of the original uh, steampunk kind of environments. So That's right. They did a ton of great work there, just some, some great guys. But when, the, when I got the call from the, the major leagues, if you will, and had an opportunity to move north from Illinois to Wisconsin and work with TSR, I, I took it. Just a really so quick it, uh, aside, yeah. really quick aside, there's a, a fellow game design workshop guy here in Denver, uh, Dave Newton. Sure, I know Dave. So yeah, just just a really quick aside. I, I talk to him occasionally about GDW. I have to tell him I uh, I spoke with you this evening. So. <laughs> we didn't. He and I didn't have a lot of crossover. He was a little later than, than me for the most part. Sure. But yeah. It, um, they did a lot of stuff. I left there in 1989, and and they they soldiered on for another four years, I think. After that. So in 1989, you went to TSR, right? I I did. I got an opportunity to. Uh, to go up there as a as a you know pretty much a rookie designer from their point of view they they took me on and I joined the same time as a lot of people and that was a, a much different ball game a bigger company with a lot more staff and there were some things that were very familiar to me but it was it was a whole new ball game but I I, I got in and, and very early on uh, started to make my mark uh, as uh, a designer in some of the existing second edition game worlds that they had going on then and then I got an opportunity to to uh, be a ground floor designer as part of the team that put together what became Dark Sun. So that was a big deal for me. Beyond that, I was also a product group manager eventually, and then the director of all creative services at, at TSR for quite a while, and oversaw the creation of other lines like Planescape and, and Spelljammer and Ravenloft were all part of my product group and my you know director level responsibilities to, to make all of that stuff happen. That is badass. Yeah, it was fun. That's that was a, a great place. You and uh, Jim Ward, right? Sure, worked with Jim Ward quite a bit. He was yeah. uh, he was vice president there for quite a while, um, and uh, he and I were you know uh, good gamer buddies and good friends. He's he's somebody I stay in contact with even now. And uh, yeah, those were those were the the golden days of of this business in many ways, the role playing game business. And I got to experience a whole bunch of it, you know, right up front, front row. So I feel very privileged uh, to have been a part of it in that way. So right. always good fun. So but how, good how long, thing, how long were you at TSR for? Uh, I was there for six years, six years at TSR. And then, uh, the writing was kind of on the wall that, uh, things were going to change there. So I got out of TSR, started pursuing some other work with other companies. I did some work with FASA in the Chicago area for a while. Did you work on Shadowrun? I didn't do any Shadowrun work. I was doing, uh, uh, some uh, work with new game properties. They were they were creating a miniatures game called Crucible that I got involved with, and that that changed into some initial design work on what became Mage Knight. Um, oh wow! As as they transitioned over the the corporation and, and folded down FASA. But 
so many times in my career that the company I was working for, especially in the 90s, would sort of disappear from under my feet. Yeah. And my, and my <laughs> only opportunity would be to move far, far away from, from where I was living. And I just, you know, I just wasn't at a point in my life where I really wanted to do that. I had my wife and my children. I didn't want to get into the, the that, habit of crossing country all the time. So, Are, are you talking about Imperium Games? Imperium Games had, had that same problem. We got that going to create the uh, new edition of the Traveler game. This was T4 or Mark Miller's Traveler. Right, Mark Miller's Traveler, which became T4. That's one where, in many ways, I, I started out, you know, just saying, I'd like, you know, I'd be glad to contribute. Um, as other people kind of came and went from the operation, I assumed more and more responsibility to actually get the products out. And then, you know, that thing uh, reached a crescendo and then sort of disappeared again because other people... Uh, you know, involved who were involved on the more of the financial end, either wanted to take it different directions or you're talking or, about Sweet Pea Entertainment. Here. Yeah, Sweet Pea. You know, and I, I don't have any animosity. Again, it's a no hate zone, and there's no hard feelings. But it uh, again, the whole project, you know, basically dissolved. And Tim, just really quick for the listeners, yeah. Sweet, Sweet Pea Entertainment is the guys mm -hmm. that own the D and D movie rights, and yeah, they made the they, they made the D and D film. Courtney Solomon's yeah, company. Courtney Solomon. Yeah, Courtney Solomon. Right. Imperium Games, well, I just got done reading Designers of Dragons, the 90s edition. Oh, okay. And there's a big old section on Imperium Games and Ken sure. Whitman and sure. kind of all that. It, it's it's kind of sad what happened there, it really is. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, people start projects like that with, with high expectations and everybody's going to get along. And then the economic realities usually, uh, you know, force their way into the equation. And, and you know, some people have become very schedule oriented and other people become very quality oriented and, and uh, the divisions can uh, drive a real wedge right down the middle of a good, otherwise, you know, good and productive design team. So, And is that, uh, I'm kind of curious is, I, I want to hear about that with mm -hmm. uh, that same, I mean, you're kind of going in the same the path I was going to talk about anyway, but this leads you to fast forward, right? It was, yeah, there's a, there's some gap in there. I did a ton of just basic freelance work for many years. That you know, as that was a good way to live. But um, we we ended up creating Fast Forward Entertainment with Jim Ward and Lester Jim Smith. Jim Ward, Lester Smith. That's right. And uh, we put together a couple of unique products, uh, and then basically folded that into what was becoming more and more profitable at the time, which was uh, all of the D twenty uh, stuff that you could make under the OGL. Yeah, it wasn't fast forward one of the few companies that actually got kind of smacked on the wrist for uh, violating the OGL. I I, I found well, we never we never really violated the OGL. We just they, they would question us always about um, encounter levels and things like that as we would put them in the game, and we would demonstrate you know repeatedly. And I have all this paperwork, and it's like, well, we generated it using your <laughs> rules, and here's what the encounter levels <laughs> turned out to be. And they would say, well, we've got we think that's too high. Well, it's your rules. You tell me what to do. So. I found an article saying that uh, four books had to be destroyed based oh, on. Oh no, that, I think that's completely false. I was oh, is that okay? Of, yeah, I was a part of the company from from start to finish, and we never destroyed any books. Okay, well, thank God for that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. No, nothing like yeah, that. Yeah, back in those days, with that was right around the time printing costs were going up, wasn't it? Yeah, so pulping yeah. four books would have killed a small company. Well, the printing costs were going up. I mean, but you know, that's kind of a, a axiomatic of the entire role playing game experience from. From its earliest days in the late 1970s, when everything kind of worked in favor of the publisher, that is, you know, the, the demand was super, super high, and the printing costs themselves were comparatively just rock bottom. It cost, it cost dirt to print stuff way back then. 
The original D and D was three dollars. a Yeah, point. I mean, and you know, and and the the price to make that stuff was was just astonishingly low. So all, you know, all of those those various factors, of course, changed over time as you know the audience became smaller and smaller in role playing games through the card game era and into the computer game era. Those numbers are going down of what you could possibly sell, and then the overall print unit cost was was really going up. You know, as paper became more expensive, everything became more expensive. The only thing that became less expensive was the basic production costs of things with the advent of computer technology. I, I, I am old enough that the first things I ever designed were on a typewriter, okay? And, uh, <laughs> uh, and Now, for our kids at home, a typewriter is basically like <laughs> Word, but it's little keys that oh, yeah. punch letters on there. And if you screw up, you have to get white Pretty out. crazy. Now, Tim, yeah. after, after D20 and fast sure. forward, uh, what happened then? Uh, I did, you know, I then had another period of, of basic freelance work before I basically started getting into um, the computer game industry. Uh, I now live in Las Vegas, where I came out to work with uh, Petroglyph Games and Tryon uh, on some games of theirs. And uh, I'm still doing work with Petroglyph, and I'm doing some work uh, also now with uh, Cryptic, and I've done some writing for other computer game companies. Um, so I'm doing a little more in the video end of things these days. You know, Brandon lives in Las Vegas. Where are you at, Brandon? Don't give an address. Somebody will find you. <laughs> well, that's yeah. not that far away. <laughs> I know. It's hardly a... That's right. That's, skip it a jump. Brandon, we have to get together. Tim, you've yes, also done do. some uh, work for Pinnacle, right? Uh, yeah. I'm doing more uh, some more role-playing work right now with Pinnacle, where I got asked to uh, be the line developer on their new science fiction uh, series within their Savage Worlds game. Last and that's Parsec? Series, yeah, it's called The Last Parsec, and the first three books are are just coming out now. They they ran a nice Kickstarter that did quite well in uh, just a couple of months ago. It includes and, a uh, uh, GM screen with an adventure by yours truly. Yeah, it's got yeah, I've got an adventure in there. I wrote one of the bigger books called Scientorium, which is a really crazy, wild, classic science fiction adventure that I think turned out really, really well. Now, I was just saying, Tim, you and I worked together on Last Parsec. Yeah, there's... And uh, we also worked on uh, Savage Lankmar. Savage Lankmar, that's right. They picked up a license to do uh, Lankmar, which is Fritz Leiber's uh, classic sword and sorcery fantasy universe. In fact, I think I read somewhere where Fritz Leiber is actually credited with creating the term sword and sorcery. Huh. Yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I, I, I can't really corroborate that. But um, uh, an interesting side note. I mean, I'm glad to work on Lankmar, and I and I loved those books when I was a kid. That's when I read, you know, everything right voraciously as a teenager. Yeah. Years later, I find out that Fritz Leiber is a uh, he is my first cousin twice removed. <laughs> his, I get to try that. That's I, awesome. I his 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 sister is my great grandfather's. No, his his mother is my great grandfather's sister, or something like that. So he was, yeah, he was always in the Chicago area. That's where he did all his writing. And I'm from Illinois. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah, my brother found this out. My genealogically interested brother found this out and told me about it. And I'm like, hey, how cool. Now, since we're here tonight to talk about Dark Sun, we have to bring yeah. up Dragon Kings. Dragon Kings, right. Which is your Kickstarter that you launched. Yeah. Uh, tell us about that. I was encouraged many times over the years that after I got away from TSR to pick up the license or the property of Dark Sun. And revitalize it. And on three separate occasions, two of which were especially well-backed and well-funded and well-organized, 
Um, but in all three instances, they turned us down flat. They just would not give up in any way, shape, or form even a license to do Dark Sun materials later. So I know that Troy Denning, the co-designer on the project, he always wanted to do more in a Dark Sun-like environment. Uh, Brahm, as an artist, you know, he can kind of reach into that area all the time. And I, I had my own ideas about, I'd like to do more game design in an environment much like Dark Sun. And since we couldn't get Dark Sun, all of us were kind of interested in creating something like it. Okay, if we can't have Dark Sun back, what, what would you create if it was something sort of its spiritual successor, if you will? So and in, in the age of Kickstarter, I was encouraged, hey, why don't you go out there and see if there's if there's a fan base that wants to support something like that? So I did. I got together. I got Brahm involved on the cover art for the project and Tom Baxa, one of the uh, original uh, artists that we worked with at uh, TSR, and uh, said, hey, I want to create this new thing called Dragon Kings, which is uh, thematically similar, but it's going to be its whole new deal. Do you guys want to get involved? And, and uh, they both said yes, and uh, uh, the rest is relatively recent history. Yeah, you, uh, you, you achieved your goal at uh, 29,000. Mm-hmm. You hit 41,000, which is great. Right. Now, right. It's, been, it's been two years since this project was funded. Uh, no, no. One. Oh well, okay, yeah, just one year. I'm sorry, you're right. It's uh, 2013, <laughs> oh, not 2012. Wait, I'm not. How old am I? <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. So one year ago, this project right. was funded one year ago, right? Uh, a little over. And uh, how how far have you guys come on uh, fulfillment? Are you pretty close to getting all the, the yeah, stuff out? Yeah, we're there. We're the, the the books are everything that needs to be printed is off and and could in fact be on a boat since we're printing that overseas right now. And I'm going to have it just after the first of the year to ship out to everybody. So we're in we're in very very good shape. So you're you're closing in on complete and total fulfillment. That is yeah, awesome. Yeah. How about yeah? All right. These projects are so large, you know, and stuff gets away from you. But yeah, yeah I'm really I'm really proud of the way the book turned out. All of the uh, art and the layout and the writing and everything. It's really really terrific. All right. And I have um, one last question for you. Yeah. Are you an elf? <laughs> I don't. I don't think so. Not you're not a psionic <laughs> desert running elf. Well, I do dig the desert. Now that I live out here, I think it's pretty cool. But it's amazing, isn't it? I haven't I haven't done any I haven't done any real elfish kind of activities, so I'll have to I'll have to say no. All right. Okay. So my character sheet still says human on it someplace. <laughs> All right. Well after the uh, after the character sheet, we're gonna talk about what we've been playing lately. Okay. And I want to start with Daryl. Daryl Tell us, what have you been playing lately? I'm still playing in my Pathfinder game that's run by my high school friend. First game he's run in a long time. Uh, it's an urban-based rogues campaign, and our first adventure last week was a dungeon crawl where we killed a bunch of creepy crawlies. And this week, uh, we or, well, Thursday, we had a little bit of a better experience in terms of in-theme in that it was very Shadowrun-esque. We were given half a plan by a member of the Thieves Guild to break into this high-society party secret these five packages somewhere in the room we have to stab them with a dagger and then something happens and we have to lock all the doors and get out (laughs) and we in true Shadowrun fashion screwed it all up and got out by the skin of our teeth uh to the point where uh uh uh, my friend will's character he actually had to wear a dress and play my wife (laughs) at the con and so we he had like this big like 
like Kaylee type ball gown with the big hoop skirt. And so we hid all the packages under there and we had to get the fifth one. And it's like, and the captain of the guard was one of the people we had to lock inside. We got all the doors. We secreted all the packages around. We had stabbed them all. We had a minute to get out before whatever happened was going to happen. And we're running out and it's like, okay, the plan was to just drop the bag and stab it on the way out. But instead he was panicking. So, uh, my friend Kim, he pulled out his dagger and instead of trying to do it properly, take it out and stab it, he stabbed her, him, in the dress <laughs> as we're running out of the building. I don't see this because I'm in front. And then the captain of the guard just sees this half-orc pull out a dagger and stab her right in the stomach. And yeah, that was kind of the tip-off that something was going wrong. But we got out and the things went off. So we did escape, barely. But now our faces are known. So con jobs are going to be difficult until I get mad some disguise kit. And, and there are somewhere in Will's house, there are two D20s that I chucked across the room in frustration. <laughs> well, it's always a good game when some character is cross-dressing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, at least that's been my experience. Brandon, what have you been playing lately? A whole lot of Shadowrun. <laughs> I bet you have <laughs> a whole lot of it. Uh, I'm I currently hold the record for most games GM'd on that Runner Hub. So nice. Yeah, I've been exercising my uh, on the fly muscles. <laughs> you're, you're a GMing machine, sir. Uh, apparently, uh, but also I've been uh, playing a lot of video games, unsurprisingly, and uh, the most recent one being Dragon Age Inquisition. I uh, have also been dabbling in Fate system game. What? Is, uh, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's uh, me and a, another guy that I know online that are currently trying to basically use this fate system to create something uh, like a, like a sci-fi type game underground. We're, we're trying our best to throw it huh. together and uh, we're just messing with the mechanics and seeing what we can do. It's rather interesting. So uh, a homebrew, homebrew uh, type game system, I That's guess awesome. you could put on there. Yeah. That's been a lot of fun. All right. Mr. Brown, what have you been playing lately? You know, for the most part, you know, locally, uh, what I get involved with is a certain amount of miniatures games. Uh, I'm still a big miniatures gamer, which, is, you know, harkens back to the, you know, the distant past of my gaming roots. But, um, you know, I love historicals and been doing some World in Flames and, and we do some uh, we do some 40K as well. Whoops. So, What's your uh, army? Uh, I, you know, I don't have out here. I don't have an army, so I, I play with whatever anybody's brought. So, <laughs> <laughs> ever since I moved here, I, I've got some Marines back in uh, my house in Wisconsin that someday I'll have to get planted back out here, right. along with my historical stuff. My all my Civil War stuff is back there too. So, all right, that's always good. Role playing wise, the last real serious role playing stuff I did was a, an online game with some friends, mostly out of Chicago area, where we were doing uh, kind of a homegrown system for a fairly historical Vikings game. Ooh. which uh, in its last incarnation took a really bizarre turn where we were kind of not only were we doing all this great Viking stuff around Iceland and you know in the north coast of France and all this other stuff where we're we're involved in, in all manner of bizarre plunder and whatnot. We get we get sort of Loki'd into a, a situation nice. where we're trans, transported into the future and suddenly we are all sailors at the Battle of Trafalgar. Wow. Things. Yeah, I know. It's really, yeah, yeah, exactly. Wow. And then and then have to uh, thwart the bad guys who have accompanied us there in in those terms, and then find our way back. So it was it was pretty pretty wild stuff. Gotta... England expects every Viking to do his duty. <laughs> I know, I know, it's fun. 
yeah, really crazy stuff. But uh, that's brilliant. Yeah, fun stuff. And then you know, Lord knows, it, it, a ton of computer games and everything else that comes across. And you know, when you're in the industry and you end up playtesting a lot of your own stuff too. So absolutely, as ramping up for uh, you know a project with a computer game company, I end up playing that game a whole lot. You know, yes, you do. yeah, this <laughs> you do. And by the time it releases, you're sick of it and done. Right, right. And I can't even remember it by its release name because I only knew it under its prototype name. So I don't even know where it is. So, <laughs> it's you know, it's fun. What Obviously, you- being able to uh, play games all the time is is a tremendous a tremendous way to. It's a to great pass job, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. What have you been playing lately, Ross? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ross, what have you been playing? Uh, I have been actually the holidays are really tough on scheduling for role playing games. Really, really, really tough. So actually, there hasn't been any real role playing uh, for me since the last show we recorded. But I have gotten to play Spartacus the board game which is brilliant. Uh, I highly recommend it to anybody who is a role player because you cannot, you cannot play this board game without role playing. In fact, so you're still into that one. It hasn't oh, gotten no, no. In yet? fact, in fact, we were, we were playing it over to a friend's house and Sean Fannin was with me and he was, he was actually sitting out because it's only a four player game and he was just running the market for us and he was role playing. <laughs> right. I mean, that's, that's, that's what makes Spartacus such a great game. Nice. Uh, in addition, I did some uh, some more writing for Warhammer 40k Regicide, which I'm really, really excited about. can't wait to hear this dialogue that I've been scripting for these guys. It's going to be amazing, um, which is a video game I'm working on. And I uh, did some, uh, some play of Batman Arkham Origins on my Xbox, which is a pretty, pretty fun little game. And that's pretty much it. Uh, you know, the, the holidays are going to – it's going to be probably at least another week before I get to play another role-playing game because of all the wow. – well, you know how it is. You know, you get guys, families, and and uh, Christmas, New Year's, and there's just it's just it's very difficult. At least I've always found it difficult to get a game going in December. Busy times. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to shift over to what we call our tavern tales, and this is where we ask our guests to give us a memorable die roll. Um, I'm going to start with Brandon, so you can kind of get an idea of what it's like, Tim. Okay. So, Brandon, can you give us a story of a memorable die roll? Oh, I have many, many, many of them. <laughs> uh, let's go with one that uh, actually happened rather recently. So the this is in Shadowrun. So the job was to... Of course it's in Shadowrun. Uh, of course, given my <laughs> history, recent history. But um, the job uh, began with the team having to grab some data from a uh, house of ill repute. So after they get this data, they find out that their target is going to be a low-level executive for a mega corporation. Some things happen, and they decide that the face is going to social infiltrate their way into an arcology, because that is always the best way to do things. They go in, set off all sorts of alarms, and get all sorts of eyes on them without even noticing, because he failed every uh, perception. (laughs) (laughs) So... (laughs) So he fails every perception. We'll just walk him by like, it's okay. I got this. I'm the face. I have like a million face dice. Oh, Lord. And uh, <laughs> uh oh. so he, so the head of security for this building knows exactly what's going on and is watching every move he makes. And the executive decides, hey, I will let him in because this should be um, amusing. He fails his first social die roll of the game. Oh, no. Critically <laughs> glitching. Deprotagonized. Yes, and uh, so the face, after this critical glitch, I asked him twice if he wanted to spend edge to make that not happen. He said, no, let's go with it. (laughs) Well, okay then. 
<laughs> wow. The, you know, this story's starting to sound very familiar, like my D&D game on Thursday. <laughs> Except I don't have uh, Edge to make my roll of one not happen on my first bluff check. Uh, so he critically glitches, and the whole time I was stringing his character along as if, you know, things are going fine. You know, people are looking at you and smiling and nodding as if you belong here. <laughs> and when he made that critical glitch, it, it was as if the music stopped. Nice. And then bad things happened, and now the character has a cranial bomb, and he has to deal with that. So, but yes, that is the most memorable die roll that I have had in recent memory in the past couple of days, at least. All right. Now, Tim, I'm going to ask you the same thing. Do you have a memorable okay. die roll you can tell us about? And if, it's, if possible, can it be a memorable die roll from a Dark Sun game? Oh, my God. Well, you know... Uh... Most of the Dark Sun games I ever played, I was actually running it. Uh, okay, that's fine. It, it could be particular it could be roles there. Uh, when the when the topic came up just a few moments ago, the, it actually harkened back to uh, a playtest we were doing in creating the 2300 AD universe oh, at uh, Game Designers Workshop. So the basic background here is that it's a relatively near future uh, Earth environment where mankind has stretched out, uh, you know, no more than thirty. 40, 50 light years away from Earth at this point to various planets. And uh, there's really only one uh, sort of aggressive warlike alien race that gets encountered, and they're called the, the Kafers. Right. And, and they're kind of like a, a half, half cockroach humanoid kind of warlike uh, uh, race. And we're playing, you know, kind of an invasion scenario as, as these things are coming through. And uh, uh, we're out at uh, Beta Canum Venaticorum, which is a an actual star system and, and we, you know the game postulates that there's an inhabited human world there that actually has its own beanstalk which is a, a space elevator all the way to uh to what geo geosynchronous or geostationary orbit i can never remember at any rate wow at any rate the the cavers decide to invade and uh our lim uh, we're the human players and we've got a very limited number of very small colonial uh uh you know, spacecraft to fight them off with. And these great big Kafer battleships are coming in. And to play this whole thing out, we actually, uh, we actually drug out Star Cruiser, which was the board game where you could play out ship combat in that environment. Nice. And, and uh, I remember we put our little ships out there and we knew that our tiny ships really couldn't do anything uh, to these Kafer battleships that were coming at us. They were just too large and, and we couldn't do much to them. But but I, I actually ran this little uh, colonial fighter craft up against one and in a, in a very Star Wars kind of way, you know, managed to eke out one little hit on it. And when we rolled that hit to see what the actual damage was, it came up as the continuing damage result in the game. Woot, critical hit. Yeah, which basically <laughs> meant every round it would, uh, it would, you would roll again for something else to go wrong on this big, big caper ship. So as, as I'm flying away, it just keeps damaging itself and... <laughs> I think Frank was actually Frank Chadwick was actually rolling for the uh, uh, for the Kafer ships and 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 rolled again another continuous damage and again nice. and I believe even a fourth time until that whole ship was just <laughs> wrecked internally from this one little uh, rubber band uh, uh, you know slingshot hit from this tiny little ineffective nice uh, uh, you know colonial uh, battler a fighter ship of mine which I thought you know well that just seems very very fun and role-playing like, and it's so miraculous that that happened. But, you know, as far as, you know, particular, what's a, what's a critical die roll kind of environment. That was, that's the one that came to mind. That's badass. That's a yeah, great story. 
Okay, let's jump into our main topic, which is talking about Dark Sun. Sure. Um, first, let's let's get into the history. How did Dark Sun came about? Okay. Well, as I said earlier, I came to TSR from Game Designers Workshop in 1989, uh, just as a base level designer, and I got there and you know got assigned to some fairly basic role playing uh, books that needed to be uh, you know written up or finished off those kinds of things. And uh, at that time, the second edition of the AD and D game was out, and there were three different um, universes created for it. They already had the world of Greyhawk. And they had the Forgotten Realms, and they had Dragonlance. Right. All three of them were what were known as second edition, you know, AD and D worlds. Those were the three worlds that went along with the second edition game. Uh, so those Spelljammer was coming out around that time. Yeah, it was, too, a, little, right? it was a little later. Yeah, but um, you know that and Ravenloft were about to happen, but they weren't really on the scene just yet. Or if they were, like, it was like one module that sort of suggested we were going to go in that direction. So. In those days, the, the you know TSR was a pretty big professional company with you know executives and department heads and all this other stuff, and and, and it certainly had ambitions to become a, a bigger company uh, as time went on in the mass market and everything. So at any rate, we had this very large marketing department, and some of the marketing people were were game savvy, and and some of them just weren't, but. They they made an evaluation. I think it was 1990, so I wasn't there very long. They they had decided that one of those three game universes was just about to die. It was going to disappear forever, and we needed to come up with something to replace it. And and the one they said that was going to die and, and disappear forever was Dragonlance. They thought any day now people are just going to stop buying Dragonlance for some reason. They must have had some chart someplace that that said that sales were. Indicate. Of course, that was absolutely wrong. Dragonlance went on for years and years and years after that. But they uh, said, "Well, the the designers dragons D- designers and dragons history book, the '80s mm-hmm. edition, mm-hmm. Uh, su- very strongly suggests that Dragonlance essentially saved TSR after all the money spent suing GDW." Um, well, that's possible. I, okay. I really, uh, I can't say that's not true, though. In the in the last years that I was there, most of the money that TSR was bringing in was actually from its, as far as I knew, was from uh, the Spellfire card game and some of the big, heavier, more successful books in the uh, uh, in the uh, second edition line, like the uh, the Monsters Compendium and whatnot, things like right. that that just sold just gonzo volume of, of books that came out. Right. But at any rate, yeah. The, uh, for whatever reason, they had decided in 1990 that Dragonlance was about to go belly up. And uh, we need another world. We need to create the world that's going to replace that. So they came to the design department and essentially gave the blessing. Create a new uh, D&D 2nd Edition, AD&D 2nd Edition game universe. Just go. And, uh, and I was shocked that of all the design staff that this was just laid out there that no, none of the known big designers really stepped up and said, Hey, I want to, I want to do this. So, I mean, and you know, for whatever reason, you know, Jeff Grubb didn't put his hand up and Zeb cook didn't put his hand up and, uh, you know, it, it kind of languished there. So in the back of the room, you know, up, up comes my hand. And I said, well, I'd, I'd like to be involved in creating whatever this is going to be. And Troy Denning was also, uh, relatively new back to TSR at that time. He had worked for it years before, but it had a hiatus. 
right. and had come back to work at uh, TSR. And uh, he and I were basically, you know, tasked with, okay, well, let's, uh, you know, let's get a team together and create some ideas and throw something together and, and see what we can come up with. Uh, I have a quick question for you here. Of course. Uh, go ahead. Uh, from from what I've read on on uh, Wikipedia and from some of the little bit of the Designers of Dragons, it's it's discussed that, and the, you could totally tell us we're wrong, but I, this is just something I'm curious about. It's sure. dis, it's discussed that uh, Dark Sun partially uh, came about because of uh, a push for a new miniatures game, an expansion well, yeah, of battle yeah. system. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so the War World, War World. Yeah, yeah. Right? Well, okay. So here you go. So as we start talking about what to do. We're also part of a larger uh, company making a lot of different products, and it didn't. There, there were two other big products that were being created sort of simultaneously, and so we, we thought that our new universe should embrace both of them. And one was the um, new Psionics book, reintroducing Psionics into the AD and D game that was being worked on, and as you just pointed out, the the new edition of the Battle System Miniatures game was was also in the works. I know Doug Niles was working on that design, and the guys at Raw Partho were already creating big miniatures lines that were going to go with it, and all of this stuff. Um, so we decided. Were they still? Uh, was Raw Partho still independent at that time, or were they owned by FASA yet? Uh, I think they were independent at that time, but they got bought by FASA a little later. But you could check me on that. I I okay. might be wrong on that, to be honest with. You. I was just curious. So this 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 uh, this push to to make it link up with the miniatures game, mm-hmm. uh, it, did that have an impact on the design of the world? Because because Dark Sun looks nothing like any of the other se- uh, settings. It's so distinct and so unique. Was that to make the sure. miniatures? Was was partially that to make the miniatures look very? Well, we, unique? Cer- we certainly had an ambition that any miniatures we could make. Uh, I should say that differently. We had every expectation that anything we created miniatures would be made for it so we might as well make everything pretty exotic looking oh okay cool um, well that's uh, awesome so we we had um we really didn't get any direction from anybody that said we really had to include a big battle system element or had to include a big psionics element but it just seemed like those would be cool things to really ramp up in whatever it is we were about to create so uh, armed with that uh, we started having a few just generalized production meetings where we would invite in various designers from around the company and just start spitballing different ideas. And very quickly, uh, a couple of things emerged. Uh, you know, first that we, you know, that like I said, we would like to do something that really embraces a lot of mass combat as battle system battle system game would allow us to do. And uh, second, we already had three very Tolkien esque fantasy worlds for Dungeons and Dragons. Right. Dragonlance, Forgotten Realms, and Greyhawk. Yeah. Right. All of them. And we should, you know, we should, we should do something different. And, uh, you know, I certainly was a, a big proponent that we, we had, we had, uh, in many ways, I wouldn't say exhausted. We had, we had definitely gone down the road of a Tolkien-like European-style fantasy universe enough times that maybe we should invest a little Gone to that well one too many times. Yeah, I, I, I kind of felt that way. I mean, that's that was my impression when I got there. Um, as I tried to ramp up quickly on all of those worlds as a young designer, I, I, I find it hard to keep them separated in my head, to be honest with, with you. But <laughs> that's fair. But yeah, I, my my own my own uh, 
particular bent on fantasy literature was always more towards the pulp authors was like the Conan and, uh, uh, you know, uh, John Carter and, and even Fritz Leiber stuff, which was a little more, well, a, a lot grittier, uh, a lot more human centric for the most part. Um, and, and just a whole different flavor about, uh, you know, the, the sense of adventure and survival, not, not everything being so sweeping that it's all boils down to what Sauron is up to, but, um, you know, a little more, a little more earthy and, and every adventure can have its own unique little flavor as the characters go on from one thing to the next. So combining all of those ideas together, we started churning things about and created a working title for something called War World. Which would uh, which would be the the earliest foundations of what we would eventually bring into being as as Dark Sun. Now, when did the artwork get involved? Because uh, the, the look is so distinct on mm-hmm. Dark Sun. I think I think the writing definitely makes it a different world, but the the artwork just transports you there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we were very fortunate. Again, you know, talk about you know ideas and people all coinciding at a, at the right place and right time. And I, I feel that was very much. Uh, happening when we got to work on on Dark Sun. We had a lot of great artists working at TSR already, and a lot of the, the famous guys, Clyde Caldwell was already there, and uh, Larry Elmore was already there. But they had some junior guys, too, and one of the junior guys on staff was a guy named Brom, who uh, had been hired on. He was a staff artist. He uh, had not been there very long. He probably started about the same time I did, or maybe a little bit before. Had done a few covers and he had such this distinctive style so you know we immediately recognized that he'd be a guy that could create some really exotic kinds of things because we were already starting to think about ramping up bug armies and all this weird stuff we were you know just pie in the sky <laughs> even entirely new races at first we were going to dispense with all of the races except human and just come up with with totally new stuff and we thought well we need somebody with a really unique feel and and we felt like we wanted to have um, a, a unified look for the for the trade dress of the line and how the paintings all looked for the covers and the interior art presentation and all of that, which up to that point at TSR had been, you know, hadn't really been solidified. The other lines, you know, looked good, don't get me wrong, but creating a, a real distinctive feel for how the whole thing looked as well as read and felt was something we wanted to do. We, we asked if we could work with uh, Brahm as a primary artist on the whole thing. He was certainly receptive to the idea. If uh, I, we if, got, if yeah. I may really quick just jump in here. Sure. This was 1990, right? The, I just, think so. Yeah, that's right. So in this period of time, you know, most role-playing products were fairly piecemeal in terms of trade dress and branding and things like that. They were. It wasn't until things like Dark Sun and especially uh, Vampire the Masquerade Mm-hmm. When they really started to build up this idea that every book should look like it's part of the same line right. and everything should have the same visual style. Right. And uh, I'll, I'll take my fair share of credit on that. I thought that that was a logical <laughs> way to go. But, you know, I'm not the artist and I wasn't doing the layout. Um, but that, that was, you know, we wanted a unified family look to our our product line. You definitely succeeded. I don't yeah, think there's and- any... Yep. I don't think there's any setting from second edition that you can identify from one look as quickly as Dark Sun. Yeah, you know, part you know, I got you know, gotta give credit that part of it is just the uniqueness of the setting. Right. That it's got it's you're gonna have paintings of whole different things as opposed to, you know, another wizard um fighting in a dungeon. Not not to put <laughs> that down, but we wanted something, you know, we really wanted to turn everything on its ear because we hadn't been told that we couldn't turn everything on its ear. 
Now, Daryl has this this now, strange rumor that he told me about. Okay. Yeah, I, there, there's a, there's a rumor I read online when I was doing the research for okay. the show, and I wanted to go to one of the people who was actually Uh-oh. there because it's an internet rumor. But uh, one of the things that was said that originally Dark Sun was going to be a frozen wasteland instead of a desert wasteland, but one of the reasons was art related in that it would preclude any art that had heavy what we now call fan service. Is there any truth to that at all? My, I, I can't really confirm or deny. There were so many um, iterations early on of, of what would be the core themes of the setting that there probably was a frozen world suggested at some point. And why we didn't go with it, uh, I'm not sure I could definitely pin down to a, an, an art-based reason why we didn't do that. My own reaction to that, my my present day reaction to that is I would have guessed we'd have gotten rid of it just because it would have been too many white covers Um, (laughs) and you can only do so much with snow and who wants to be cold all the time. And, uh, even, even Conan leaves the frozen North to go where it's warm (laughs) and, and adventurous. Fafford certainly does the same thing. Right, right. right. It's a good place. John Snow never learned the lesson. True enough. Well, let's let's be very clear here. I personally am a big fan of Dark Sun. I always thought it was a really, really cool, uh, very unique setting. I didn't play a whole lot of campaign set there, but I always looked at it and said that right there is a very creative, unusual, unique, distinct world. Daryl, did you ever play a lot of Dark Sun? Uh, I didn't, but it's probably because when I was a kid, it had this same vibe to it that I can't put my finger on why, but and I don't know the timeline whether it, what came out first but i never liked dune oh okay <laughs> and dark sun had a dune vibe to the artwork and again okay, i don't sure. know if dune came first or after oh, dune came way first well, actually probably for, well, yeah, i would have been first because the movie came out way before yeah, the movie it came out in the early 80s the, the novels are but, from the 50s and 60s for the most part right and the and the the the, the, the most famous dune movie was uh, early 80s right yeah I think it was 83. Okay, sounds right. Like sounds right. All right, so Daryl didn't play very much of it either. So. Okay. Yeah, I, well, I, I didn't play much of it until we got into 4th edition. Oh, sure. Uh, I like I loved it in 4th okay. edition. It was, it, it fit the tone and style of the game. If you had a good GM who was able to really bring those sort of survival, dystopian, post-apocalyptic elements. What in about you, Brandon? Did you, what, what's your opinion of Dark Sun? Uh, my opinion of Dark Sun is that I unfortunately was never able to play it. I have heard of it. I have talked to many people about it. I've heard wonderful stories about the setting. I've just never experienced it firsthand, unfortunately. <laughs> and it's after doing a bit of research on it and uh, listening to everything that we've talked to talked about it so far is this is a fantasy setting I would love to be a part of if I could ever find a group to play it with. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> What is the most important invention in all of mankind? Beer! Longtime listeners will know how much I love good alcohol. But when it comes to craft beers, there's so much out there, it can be intimidating. What's the difference between a brown L and an IPA? And why is there so much German, Hefeweizen, Bach, Dunkel? Where do you start? I'll tell you where. Craft Beer Club. For just $3 each, you'll get three bottles of four different beers right to your door every single month from independent craft brewers of the best quality. In just a short amount of time, you'll be snobbing up with the hipsters talking about nose and hops. But Daryl, I can get a 12-pack cheaper at the local store, you say. 
But can you get specialty regional small batch beers at that price with this much selection? I didn't think so. Besides, you know you'd spend twice that much at a bar for the same beers just to try them out. So go to gamerstavern.org slash craftbeerclub and we'll start you out with your first shipment plus three free gifts. That's gamerstavern.org slash craftbeerclub and start enjoying real beer. We're back with guest Timothy Brown. We're talking about Dark Sun. Tim, thanks again for being on the show with us because... Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Can you tell us, what is Dark Sun? Dark Sun is a fantasy game universe that emphasizes a few key things that have always uh, spoken to me as a, as a reader of fantasy and as a gamer of fantasy. It is a place where the environment itself is one of the adversaries you are consistently up against. It is an environment where you personally can rise and fall in your personal fortunes radically from very rich to very poor and unimportant and very quickly over a short period of time. And I think the combination of those two things in a fantasy, highly magical sort of environment creates a really rich place to create adventures and things to do and a lot of fun to be had. Okay. And so the, the themes, you talked about the themes of Dark Sun. What are those main themes? Uh, I think the theme specifically to Dark Sun, obviously, you start with the desert setting. Here's a, here's a world that is stressed, and the chief reason that that world is stressed is because the application of magic in that particular universe actually has a destructive effect upon the natural ecosystem in the immediate environment of the spellcaster. Defilement. Right. You're, you're using defiling magic. It basically sucks the life energy out of things around you to power that magical spell. So a decision must be made. Do you want to do it? Is it worth casting the magic in the first place? And, and obviously years and generations and all this, all this magic that's been thrown about has had a, has had a, a terrible effect upon the environment so, such that the entire region, that entire region of Athos is, uh, is a very um, inhospitable place to be. And the world is called Athos. Yeah, the world of Athos, right. So that environment, I think, is, is, is just key. And again, from the literary background that we tried to draw upon, you know, it's, it's key in a lot of that literature. It's survival on Dune is, you know, is key. It's, it's, it's something that's it's ever-present. You cannot forever get away from it if you want to live and Traveler. work on Dune then, then you have to pay attention to that. So harsh environment is a yeah. big theme for Dark. Yeah, yeah. Traveling, traveling between cities and something like Dragonlance or Forgotten Realms. It's just, hey, let's put a caravan right. together so the orc riders don't get us. And in Athos, it's okay. We have to bring a epic crapload of water, or we're all going to die. Right. It's like the Oregon Trail on crack. <laughs> yeah. So, so there's there's more consideration to your average just getting around your average survival on a given day, and you know it, it creates. A tougher breed of adventurer, that sort of thing. Now, the tone um, of Dark Sun is darker too, right? Yeah, most definitely. Uh, it, it is a treacherous uh, kind of place. Um, obviously, the sorcerer kings uh, in their cities across uh, that region of the world each had uh, it's his own, his or her own terrible tale of how they uh, came to power and how they ruled their particular uh, city state. But in general, it's it's a it's a place of treachery and skullduggery and the nefarious backstabbing that's going on is 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 another constant thing that you have to be vigilant 
Well, like um, there's cannibalism. And no well, gods. Well, hang on. With, with tone oh. specifically, I'm talking about like the, uh, cannibalism is a core part of the game. Yeah. Uh, slavery is a core part of the game. Like these Absolutely. things happen all the time. Right. Gladiatorial combat is not in the fun yeah, way. Yeah, yeah the original the original storyline that we started meeting out for the original lead character that became uh, Rikus was that he is a a gladiator. That gladiatorial combat and slave ownership are, of course, pervasive all across the planet, and that uh, there's actually impetus for a Spartacus style uh, revolt against that kind of oppression. I am Rikus. Uh, that's right. I am Rikus. Hey, we, and that was a uh, tear, right? We should, we should make a movie. <laughs> <laughs> or a Star's television show. <laughs> so, yeah, they're all saying there's no gods. Yeah, we made a, we, again, part of the rampant let's change everything, uh, of which I was very, very guilty, was, <laughs> well, let's, you know, do, do we need to have an environment that has a pantheon of gods? And uh, we kind of decided that there's really no... There's, there's no compelling reason we have to do that. We can change the character classes around in such a way that it's not completely uh, necessary. And we created the Templars in such a way that uh, they don't have specific gods that they're that they're worshiping, which, again, t- takes the entire AD&D game system and, and, you know, takes whole chapters out that you don't even need anymore. Right. So so we were we were we were self radicalized when it came to. Uh, uh, changing things around and now there's and, there's no gods but everybody everybody is psionic yeah wild talents it's a matter of degree so uh we felt like um again that was it was a, it was a unique and fun system and it gave every character not just the traditional spell casting character classes in in other AD&D second edition games but it really gave every character an ability to infect the environment in sort of a in sort of a mock magical kind of way and and what would that do right what does that do to your entire environment what is what is being metal poor do to your entire environment what what you know all of these questions it's like uh, take them all and how, how does that change the basic ad and d universe now right. one rumor i will squash i remember this rumor from way back when we put it all out and, and we had an idea, you know, that we wanted the various city states across this thing. So actually, Troy was the first guy to actually draw up. He took a piece of the map paper and drew out uh, the, the very first pencil sketch of what would become the uh, the map of this Colorado sized portion of the world. OK, so not a very big portion of the world. Anyway, he drew that all out and that became the map that the basis for which became the, the really nice painted map that eventually came out as the poster. The game had hardly been out, and people were saying, "Ha ha, we were right. This is the Forgotten Realms in the future." <laughs> and it's like, oh. we never thought of it as the Forgotten Realms in the future. Absolutely not. But there were people who insisted on various. Uh, well, this is you know it's the early '90s, so there were very few websites, very few chats going on in those days. But uh, there was a consistent, uh, you know, paranoid uh, fantasy out there that. That we had, you know, this is the Forgotten Realms in the future. And people were even saying you could take that, that map of Athos and put it down over a Forgotten Realms map in such a way and all these different cities lined up or some crazy stuff like that. Wow. Because yeah, the original the original history, the backstory was something about like the entire world's races started with halflings who were bioengineering <laughs> right. a fungus or something. Right. <sighs> wow. um, we thought we could create a fairly science fiction 
sounding backstory to the whole thing that that ultimately there was a time and a place where the world was a lot more common in an AD&D setting type uh, you know if if that's common right and and there was dabbling in various magic or dabbling in various pseudoscience that actually led to a changing of the universe in such a way that it it probably did such things as unleash psionics, for instance, and and change the color of the sun, and did all of these things that because uh, it was a it was a blue sun that was changed to a yellow yeah, sun something like that. because of the because they found defiling magic and that kind of blew everything up, and then like the brown fungus was kind of taking over the planet and sucking up the water. That was the original story. Well, in I'm, Second I'm sure there's right? Superman figures in there somewhere too, right? The yellow <laughs> sun. He's <laughs> like, I need that power, man. Precisely. Precisely. <laughs> That's a part of the, of the, of the story though, that we didn't mind uh, people chatting about. We didn't mind it changing from telling to telling or addition to addition uh, to sort of. Yeah, Cause I got retconned in fourth edition, didn't I? Uh, yeah. I think they, I think they just, change it yeah they they retconned everything where it was like a uh, uh, guy whose name starts with an r and has a th in uh, crap uh the first uh Defiler. right um sorry the, the name's escaping but he basically <laughs> sorry my fault uh but basically he they changed the history so that instead of that it's he found magic and magic just happened to suck the life out of everything and when he was on his war of conquest he kept sucking up more and more and more and other people started learning it and then desert right. okay I'm not as familiar with that stuff. Way after my time, of course, but um, yeah, that was uh, fourth edi- fourth edition mm-hmm. was designed by um, well, uh, former guest and friend of the show Robert Swab and Bruce Cordell had a hand in let's, that let's as well. Let's be very very clear. You know, so I I think Robert Schwab and Bruce Cordell are great guys. I love the things that they've done, but this is also the same edition of Dark Sun that introduced an adventure where you found like a crown in a river. <laughs> which are what? two things yeah two things you should never ever find in a dark sun adventure like well there's a whole five rivers no 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 this was planet, like just I like a, it was just like a river at the bottom of a dungeon that was it had completely nothing to do with anything and if they if this was actually a dark sun adventure the whole reason to go in the dungeon would be to find the freaking river <laughs> so was that one of the so was that one of was that one of the encounters? I believe it was because they had an entire RPG season of encounters adventure. Oh, okay, and it was one. it okay. was fairly Again, no hate on this this, this uh, podcast. So I was just very disappointed to find out that it kind of bucked the trend, if you will, of Dark Sun yeah. <laughs> by saying, "Oh, hey, yeah. here's this big pile of gold well, and magic items and a and a freaking river." Um, yeah, it, it was pretty roundly dismissed online as a not very Dark Sun like <laughs> adventure. <laughs> I, you know, it's it's one of those things where you know Troy and I have talked about this several times over the years that just the circumstances of both of our careers kind of took us away from dark sun fairly quickly after it was designed and put out on the market. So it wasn't too long after that, that he was no longer involved with the game design because he was doing a whole lot more novel writing. And I was not a whole lot involved in the day to day design because I was doing a whole lot more management sorts of things. So other people come in and as new people start, you know, uh, sharing your universe, and doing their own things with it, you can always take a look and say, "Well, I'm not sure that's what I would have done." But I've got I've got three words for that yeah. one: the last C. <laughs> Two more words. Uh, oh crap! I can't remember what they're called. Mind crap. What are the mind guys called? I haven't the notes. Mind lords. Right. Well. Yeah, that was uh, that. That's a source book that came out for Dark Sun a little bit later in its second edition era, where uh, they 
uh, talked about the last sea that's left on the sure. planet. And uh, there's a city there that's ruled by these people called the Mind Lords. They're about 9,000 years old, and they all have dementia at this point. And it is enforced Happyville. <laughs> Everyone has to think happy thoughts all the time, or these Sardonics are going to pick it up, and then they're going to basically uh, mind wipe you and make you happy if you're not happy. Well, there are some. At least that. Yeah. At least that's my impression. Again, uh, that's my impression from reading some of the stuff right online. I haven't read that actually. Okay, I don't, want, I don't want to do so. all this, but I did find the name yeah. of the adventure I was thinking of. It's called Marauders of the Dune Sea. Oh, okay. It is by Bruce Cordell. Oh, that one. Okay. Um, again, Bruce, we love you. Just FYI, yeah. we think you're great. Uh, yeah, but, absolutely. But, but there is I'm a 15 gonna... foot deep pool of water in this dungeon. <laughs> so that's <laughs> a little. Rich. That's pretty. Not Dark Sun. I just want to throw that out there. <laughs> well, they're, they're, kind of a big deal. Yeah. Just just from a game designer's point of view, um, there are certain game universes that get created that lend themselves very well to being a shared universe that you can put almost anything in it and it kind of fits. The Forgotten Realms, for instance. I think you can almost put anything into the Forgotten Realms someplace. Um, but the the more restrictive the theme of the universe the harder it is sometimes to fit new stuff and new ideas into it without the, the seams kind of showing. Right. Um, that that brings up something that I thought was always one of the coolest things about Dark Sun is because it's such a brutal place, uh, and this was unheard of in second edition, you start off at third level. Everyone right. is a third level character right. because even, even the guy you're buying your provisions from is a third, basically a third level <laughs> fighter. Right. Because no one else can survive. <laughs> yeah, we uh, we talked about that rather extensively up front. Whether that would be a, a good thing, certainly there were you know there were marketing reasons to do something like that to to sort of sell the thing as this is a super dangerous place, almost a dare. Right? Do you dare adventure in this place? <laughs> um, you know, it's kind of silly when you think about it, but this was still second edition, the second edition game which I think predates the damage creep, if you will. Right. This is still back in the day when, you know, your basic first-level character could deal out, you know, one to eight points of damage every time you did an attack, and that was about it, as opposed to later editions of the game where if you got all the right things lined up, uh, you can do 40 points of damage. As a second-level yeah. character. Well, this is why Dark started you at third level, right? Right, right. In those mm -hmm. days, you know, we didn't have any other you know, specific means to uh, fortify you and thought that not only for purposes of damage you might receive because it's a harsh environment, but also to ramp up the interest level for initial characters with having, a, you know, more spells to cast and, and things like that. It just seemed like a neat thing to do. And uh, it was it was well received. Well, here's a couple of things that are interesting. I want to yeah. point this out. Literacy is actually against the law in Dark Side. All right. Huh? It is, it, is, it is outlawed for you to be able to know how to read, which is a big deal. <laughs> and then you have two of your starting races, when it, which is uh, the elves who run marathons and are raiders in the right. desert. And the Thrykreen, which are your humanoid mantis guys, hmm? they are actually With four they arms. Are mortal freaking enemies because the Thrykreen eat elves. Right. So you could this is a, this is a game where you could start out – with your character already being a criminal just because he knows how to read, and <laughs> your best friend is playing a character who likes to have you on a plate with a little, you know, side of, of, of greens. 
You know, I mean, it's, <laughs> I, I love, I love that it sets up this world that it, it really, like you say, it's, everything's different. Well, it, that's a really good example oh. of how everything is different right there. Well, it reminds And the halflings. Yeah, the halflings. 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 Then you have uh, half dwarves, which are called mules. Right. A cross between a, a, a sterile cross between a human and a dwarf. And then you've got half giants, which are a race. Yeah, the half giants were introduced after um, my work on the game, but I thought they were a good fit. The half giants were really cool. That again, kind of it was like an experiment of uh, one of the sorcerer yeah, kings that, that just created really them. Really fit, and I, it, you know, it resonated with people. They enjoyed playing them. They enjoyed encountering them. Now, I got a um, question. Who yeah. was it? You that decided to put the thrycreen in? Yes. Why? They're yeah. awesome, but why? Well, honestly, I was so taken with the concept art for the thrycreen as it was being created for the. Or Monster Manual edition that they first appeared in. Yes, me too. I, I they, wondered if that was the case. <laughs> yeah, that was it, really. I just thought, man, that is so cool. And, man, it, you know, and we were already heading down the road of this being a desert kind of environment. And I thought, wow, these Strike Queens would be great. And in fact, my original bent on the entire Dark Sun planet, here's, here's a spoiler alert for something that never came to pass, was that essentially you've got this Colorado-sized map and if you took the entire rest of the planet, it is basically thrycreene dominated. There's on the other side of the world is basically this gigantic thrycreene Roman Empire, if you will. Wow. And it dwarfs wow. everything on this side of the world. That essentially um, Dark Sun would be a, a thrycreene and bug planet with, with a limited number wow. of humans still hanging on in the region that we described. The only good bug is a but, dead bug. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm, taking, I'm doing my part. Okay, <laughs> I, I did want to throw this yeah. out there. Uh, when you're talking about the maps, there is an awesome website I found when I was doing my research. It's at uh, digitalwanderer.net slash darksun. Okay. And it's kind of an interactive map of Athens oh, nice. where you can sit there and scroll around. And it's got every single settlement, every single city. And when you click on them or even like geographical features like the Kano Swamp, you click on it and it gives you like information about that place. Yeah, that's really terrific. Like who's there? And it's really cool. It's kind of like Google Maps. You can click and drag around the map and <laughs> zoom in, zoom out. It's really yeah, cool. Only we had had such power. Let's talk a bit about Dark Sun from the standpoint of an adventurer, right? So you yeah. got to deal with the environment. You got to make sure you have water. You got to make sure you have food. You got to make sure you have some kind of weapon, usually made out of bone or stone. Right, because it's a metal poor environment. Metal poor environment, which, and which then that led to two things. First, just just narrative interest, and yeah. second, that really opened up uh, Brahm to make all kinds of really wacky stuff. And, and if I if I can for a moment, just, yeah, sure. just to, to uh, talk about the art interface a little bit, we also I, I think we were very much on the cutting edge of of the creative process between writing designers like Troy and myself and working with with Brahm on the on the visual side, pretty much up to that point, every product I'd ever been involved in, pretty much everything in role-playing, the relationship was the writer would write down something and ask the artist to draw it. And it was a very one-way kind of communication. And if the artist drew it in the way the designer liked, that was fine. If he didn't, the designer would tell the artist how he needed to change it. And we thought, there's there's no reason that we... The, the writers should be so in charge of the visual aspect of the game. So we, we made it, you know, a, a pact, if you will, with Brahm up front. We want to describe stuff and have you draw it. But we also want you to draw all kinds of wacky stuff and then we'll describe it. And uh, a lot of great stuff came out of that. And, and we always wanted to give Brahm 
more fodder for making weirder and weirder stuff. So if you create a universe where steel is often supplanted with bone or with pieces of bugs and all this other stuff, then it really gave him a lot of latitude to make some really interesting visual uh, elements for the game. It was a true collaboration. I always, yeah. I just always loved the idea of like your standard knight in shining armor isn't wearing shining steel armor. He's wearing bug skin. <laughs> right. Yeah, chitin. Yeah. <laughs> yep. yeah, yeah, use what you've got. All right, right, so so I'm an adventurer in Dark Sun yeah. in Athos. I've got uh, some I've got some psionics. I'm third level. I'm pretty buff, uh, but I have to worry about food and water, and I have just metal and bone weapons. But right. then, if I step foot outside the city, <laughs> like everything wants to kill me. Right, no. right, right. You need friends. You need friends. Right, sandworms. Like what? What? Well, let's talk about the monsters, right? Because okay. there were a lot of really interesting monsters out there in Dark Sun. Yeah, well, that's that's another one where we li- really let the artists go fairly wild, and we would write up, you know, you just just draw the craziest, most dangerous looking thing you can. And of course, they're always really dangerous looking. So, well, yeah, uh, they got spikes coming out of places that shouldn't <laughs> right, be spikes. Right, right. <laughs> well, let's. Um, um, that's let, how you know they're dangerous, <laughs> Tim. I want you to tell us about the dragons. <laughs> my favorite thing in my research was the dragons. Well, for me, the dragons, you know, the idea would be, you know, again, this is a very powerful and dangerous environment. And and uh, as as we started going through it, we thought, well, we should we should examine the dragons in terms of the fact that dragon form is something that is achieved, especially through the use of bizarre magic over a long period of time. Uh, when I when I worked on anything in the second edition game. As a new designer, especially, I'd always I'd always take a look at the the list of spells, even up to and including those ninth level spells, and say, you know, in the final analysis, almost all of the spells in this book are are still mostly concerned with how do I, the wizard, kill the monster in front of me right now, and that's still what a, a lot of that magic was involved with. And and again, from my literary background in fantasy, I thought. You know, where, where's the game mechanics and the game terms for these more gigantic kinds of spells, the sort of stuff that Thoth Amon and Conan was was cooking up, you know, for, for six years and, and sacrificed a thousand souls to make some gigantic magical effect. Things that took a long period of time, things that took a lot of effort, that took a lot of somatic, comp- you know, com- components and everything else. And all of those ideas kind of got married forward in that these are these are part of the transform transformative process where super high level magic users actually became dragons themselves, and and that really resonated with a lot of people. Though it did, it left me with a a caution as a designer that I carry with me to this day because we at some point in the design process we actually put the stats out there for the different sorcerer kings right at the very next convention i ever attended some kid came up to us and said he loved that module they killed every one of those guys and had very much changed the uh <laughs> the setting from that so, point forward so what, which module was that was that the um which one has all the stats i was it uh, the valley and dust fire? fire right and and oh by the way uh that is generally considered to be the hardest module ever <laughs> written for D D. Because twentieth level I, I'm not sure I don't have it up right now, but basically you can get your twentieth level party can get wiped 
by a sandstorm. <laughs> well, maybe it needed more play before testing. you get to the city. Right, but this is this is all back to how you become a, a dragon, right? Because right. You, dragons are not born; they're made. They're made. That's right. And, <laughs> and every one of them has their own unique and terrible backstory as they as they they climb this 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 uh, ladder of destruction all the way to where they they end up going. And they you know and they are. They are supposed to be evil, okay, with a capital E. Now, just to but, give the listeners an idea of how badass these guys are, they're <laughs> they're twentieth level wizards who are also twentieth level psionicists. Right. Step one to become a dragon, you have to become a twentieth level wizard. Step two, you then have to become a twentieth level psionicist. Right. Step three, you then have to go through ten stages of transform transformation. Which are represented by taking 10 levels of a class called Dragon. Step four, you're a dragon that has 50 friggin' levels. In second edition, that means incredibly awesome. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, you know, we. And, uh, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the reason why there's no, uh, gnomes, goblins, orcs, whatever, the story reason why is that basically you have to get a lot of XP and have to get a lot of stuff to become a dragon and get those levels. Right. And so basically the dragons in Athens have committed genocide to get to that point. Yeah, I'd hate to, I don't think we ever ran the math on how many, uh, how many populations of monsters had to be wiped off the face of the planet to, uh, to accommodate all these levels. Now these guys, now, the, the, now here's the really, really, really bad news. These dragons that we're talking about, these incredibly evil, incredibly powerful dudes, they're the ones who rule the cities. You know, the safe places. Right. <laughs> one of them. One. Yeah. There is one dragon in Athens that I'm aware of. <laughs> well, the other, are, is, is it the other cities run by dudes who are going through this process, though? Yeah. As I recall, they're all, re they're, you know, I think in the first. Uh, they're all on the way. Game. Yeah, they're yeah. on their way. Yeah. Every one of them. Right. This is what I'm saying. Is maybe now they're not there yet, but they're on their way to this. And they're the ones that are ruling the safe places to live. <laughs> right. That's what I love. <laughs> well, it's all safe if you don't cross them. <laughs> well, the cities are reasonably like you're not going to get devoured by a horrible thing beneath the sand in a city, typically. Right. <laughs> you, you're just going to be devoured by your sorcerer king. Well, let's well, talk that about. Sacrificed or, or caught up in a slave rebellion. Let's talk about the classes because we talked about the races and how they're different. Mm -hmm. What? How are the classes in Dark Sun different than your typical classes in D&D? Well, we changed. You know, we tried to change things around in such a way that it, it was mostly environment kind of backtracking upon the character classes. So we kind of thought, here's what our environment's going to be. Let's backtrack and say how that changes things. So, for instance, without gods, you know, we we uh, changed the, the clerical thing around to be more like a Templar sort of thing. And, and with the magic having its terrible effect on the environment, we thought, well, okay, well, now we've got to take our... Uh, spellcasters and divide them into those who don't care, the defilers, and those who do care, the preservers, and, and how do those things sort of interact and, and, and make things uh, a bit more unique for them. So it was, it was very much backtracking from the environment to, okay, how do we make the character classes basically fit with this? Uh, and I really loved what you guys did with preservers versus mm -hmm. defilers in terms of magic, and that defilers is quick, easy, powerful, but preservers, you have to actually put thought and effort into it and it's never going to be as powerful yeah. as a defiler's magic yeah it was uh but it's not going to wreck the environment and then you've got the idea that uh basically everyone on athos is you use magic you're not a sorcerer king which <laughs> burn them yeah. 
whether you're a preserver or a defiler. Yeah, there's 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 a certain amount of animosity. We just thought it would be a natural consequence of all that destructive magic because everybody knows what it does, right? If you're going to cast a lot of spells around my my subsistence farm, you're going to take it below subsistence level. So I've got to drive you away first. But you know, again, these are all consequences of of a difficult environment that's got. Uh, we wanted to put those difficult choices in there, whereas, you know, just take the preserver defiler dichotomy there that um, it, it's just it's just a manifestation of, of the axiomatic. It's 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 easier to destroy than to create, if you will. Well, then you got uh, clerics mm-hmm. and they uh, instead of drawing their powers from the gods because there are no gods, they're drawing the powers from the elements. Right. Elemental elemental, elemental uh, based magic and. uh this was a time, too, that I guess another little piece of, of AD&D history that, that maybe not everybody knows. But the first edition of the Advanced Dungeons & Dragons game, which was laid down almost exclusively by Gary in the different books, and he certainly had guidance over all of it, um, was rife with demons and devils. And he explored the planes in detail, and there were all the you know deities and demigods and all of those, those way old books that established all of this stuff. But when the company changed hands and they wanted to release the second edition of the game, they took certain things out. They took out the assassin character class. for Ah, uh, this was the satanic panic. Right. They took out the monk character class. And it, it's not so much a panic, but uh, the company had changed hands and it was basically owned by people who thought that they would like to take it more mainstream. That someday they would like editions of Dungeons & Dragons that sold at Sears and Kmart and in every toy store in America, at least during Christmas, right? So uh, they thought, well, let's let's just take that stuff out. And that included all the references to the planes and the demons and the devils. All that stuff disappeared right. from second edition. And then we designers, you know, tried to reintroduce it in, in supplements rather than being part of the main game. So, uh, again, there's really assassins fascinating. come back and monks a- come back and all that other stuff. There's a really fascinating chapter on all of this stuff uh, in the mm-hmm. Designers Dragons book on the 80s because it goes into depth about the satanic panic and the reaction to it and things of that nature. So Right, right. I, I wasn't around for the super early days of that stuff. The, um, you know, the, the, the kid in the steam tunnels and all that. I really don't know a whole lot about that personally. But there are guys who were there at that time that credit that sort of publicity. I can, I can talk. Publicity and, and say that. Like it or not, that that spurred a lot of publicity, and they sold a ton of games based on that. Yeah, that there's stuff alone. Well, it, it's it's controversial because there's guys like Mike Stackpole that say is absolutely it was bad for the industry, and then there's mm-hmm. there's a lot of other people who are like, well, it, it definitely got everyone talking about the game, which means right. that everyone was buying the game. So <laughs> yeah, one way one way or another, you know, I, I, Dungeons and Dragons has has brand recognition worldwide almost as good as Coca Cola. Yeah. If, even if you've never played it, almost everyone's heard of it, and and that harkens back to, you know, a lot of things. You know the you know the 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 tonnage of product that was being sold in the pre computer age when role playing games were brand new in you know nineteen eighty eighty one eighty two, just just mountainous amounts of material. I was told again this that's before my time at TSR, but uh, I was told that they were seriously considering at TSR buying their own paper mills and forest because they were <laughs> because they were printing so many books there would be reasonable cost savings to them to just own it all wow now getting so, back to the crazy. classes yeah. 
getting back to the classes really mm-hmm. quick. Um, so we talked about the clerics. They have a, a elemental thing instead of gods. We right. talked about preservers and defilers. Now, druids. Druids, uh, they had to be bound to an oasis somewhere. Is that right? Uh, that was the original thought, and I think that that got that became a little more lax in later editions of the game. But we thought that you know, uh, you know, with so little remaining nature out there to glom onto what, living nature, what we, yeah, <laughs> exactly, living nature. I mean, there's enough there's enough rock and sand and exposed you know mountains, but uh, any place where there's any you know nurturing living you know life left to be is so isolated that we thought, okay, well. There was a lot of debate early on. Is there enough of that in our supposed environment to make the Druid class even worthwhile? And and there was certainly consideration to eliminate it. But we thought, okay, well, it, this is a world that, that where life is still clinging on, right? So we should have Druids who are also clinging on to that those last vestiges of life. So Druids were Klingons? <laughs> I didn't say that. I'm going to get sued by Paramount. God. <laughs> Damn it, Ross. <laughs> um, Seriously, I, about to dial 911. I'm hurting so bad from that one, Ross. Come on. And then there were some new, there were some brand new classes too, right? Like uh, fighters. There were fighters, but they're also gladiators. Gladiators, right. And there yeah, was Templars. Yeah, and the Templars, you know, we, we wanted to create kind of the badass cleric kind of halfway sort of thing and, and the templars were clear way to create a, a fighter sort of a, sort of a, a militant class that could that could bridge over and be obvious uh, henchmen for the uh for the evil uh sorcerer kings that are ruling all of the cities so but these were, a, this, this is a really interesting point though these were also a core class for adventurers mm-hmm. it seems like you as the designer were telling players it's okay to have one of these servants of a really nasty evil dude mm-hmm. who gets his power from a really nasty evil dude mm-hmm. going with you on adventures. <laughs> <laughs> well, we weren't afraid of of putting a lot of diverse people in the same in the same adventuring group. So often, we, again, we would take a look at the fairly Tolkien-esque adventuring party, if you will, in that sort of fantasy. And in that sort of fantasy adventure group, everybody's friends. Everybody has a common purpose. Whereas from the pulp setting, if you look at, at Conan Adventures, for instance, he's very often adventuring hand-in-hand hand with somebody he knows is on the opposite side of, of the fence. He's a, this is a potential enemy, but for the moment, yeah. we are uh, friends of necessity. Allies of convenience. And, right, exactly. And, and I think that leads to a lot more dynamic storytelling in, in, the, in the final analysis, though, though from a, a game master or dungeon master's point of view, sometimes that becomes more difficult. But you know, we wanted to we wanted to leave those doors open. We didn't want to dictate your party has to be all good characters or all evil characters or whatever. You could good characters don't fare well in Athos, in my experience. Yeah, well, it's, there's not saying that you can't be heroes, <laughs> right? Right. But there's a lot of dark heroism going on. There's a lot of yeah. You know, pick the lesser of several evils and and pursue that. So shades um, of dark gray. Yeah. Let's, yeah. <laughs> let's talk about the world a little bit. We talked about the sure. classes and the races. Sure. What are some of the distinguishing features, like some really important places on Athos? We wanted to put, you know, obviously the, the main setting is all of this um is all of this arid landscape. And if you read the original edition, we tried to paint and, and I credit Troy with most of this because because he was a man from the West and had a much better idea of what real deserts were than I ever did. Though I live in one now, I didn't then. We tried very much to vary the quality of those different desert environments. And, and 
I wish we had had more art to represent those. So, you know, there's, there was places that were clearly defined to be like more like salt flats. And there were some that were more like boulder field kind of places. And, and some were, you know, the, the typical Arabian type sand dune desert was very much in the minority. These are arid places, but with a lot of distinctive character that if, if they had been color books with a bigger art budget in those days, we'd have, we'd have done a lot more. We would have given a lot more illustrative uh, demonstration of what those were to be like. So we got one of the, uh, the, the the landmarks, of course, are Uruk, right? Which is mm-hmm. the main the main city ruled by the dragon. Is that right? Uh, yeah, that's one of them. And then there's the Sea of Silt. The Sea of Silt is off to the what the uh, east of this location, and it's got its own uh, unique character that that again gets explored mostly in later modules. But what is the Sea of Silt? A, yeah, it, it is basically a place of of how would I say more of a seabed kind of a place that is actually filled with such a fine yet substantial sort of of dust and whatnot that it can be sailed upon you can move through it you can drown in it you can drown in it it's but with a limited amount of magic you can get through it and sort of walk to its very bottom and and do all these different things so well on, on, on the plus side there is about uh three to four meters down there's a nice solid mm-hmm. base you can walk right. across except for three to four meters is <laughs> nine to twelve feet hey, you get yeah. a big straw Right. <laughs> there, there was actually well, a, if I'm not uh, mistaken, a bit of art. I'm sorry to cut you off, Daryl, but I got to get this out because this, this bit of art was awesome. It like snapped or clicked in me what this setting was all about. Is there's uh, a boat with some wheels and a sail going right. through the sea of silt, and behind right. it, and this is in full color. There's a giant that's like mid chest deep in the silt, just <laughs> right. reaching, and you can tell he's about to just eat this thing alive if you're tall enough. <laughs> Yeah, and he's just deep. clawing through it. And below it, it's like Sea of Silt, where nothing wants you to live. <laughs> <laughs> and so in my research, that, mistaken, that just clicked uh, in me what this setting was all about. So it's Australia. Right. <laughs> exactly. It, it is a bigger <laughs> Australia. <laughs> no offense to our Australian Send your listeners, emails to but your country. <laughs> at your, the gamers tavern. Well, <laughs> well no, uh, uh, allow me to finish my. Uh, no offense to our Australian listeners, but. Your continent's kind of fucked up, dudes. <laughs> Come on. Everything's trying to kill you. Send your emails to abstruse <laughs> at gamerstavern.org. <laughs> Everything is scary. But yeah, so sorry to cut you off with that. I just had to get that out because that no, really defined the setting for me. Uh, That's a very... That, that was actually what I was about to bring up is like riding giant back mm-hmm. is one of the best ways to get across the sure. sea of silt. Now, there's, uh, a, there's a free city too, right? Um, Tear. Right. Here's the free city. That's where the slave revolt begins. We we wanted to have a place. I I think the it was probably done better in uh, Planescape by creating the hub location of Sigil, which works very good for that setting. I think uh, in in the Dark Sun setting we had we had a, a good kernel of an idea to create the one place where everybody basically starts, where one where everybody can basically feel a bit neutral and and you know, comparatively safe in whatever it is that they're doing. And, and that was what we were trying to do with that particular city state. Now, and we also, it, I'm, I'm sorry, sorry go ahead. really quick. Isn't it true yeah. though, that there are certain people that are not safe in here and those are pretty much Templars? Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the, the most evil of the evil, the Templars are, you know, what kind of frowned upon, but we were always big on, you know, if, if you basically like in a Conan type setting, you can go anywhere you want in, 
in pretty much ease and disguise if you're not displaying your raw talents at any given time. So you can get in and out of there. Okay. And Tyr is the only one of the city-states that uh, slavery is illegal. Yeah, that's after the Because slave, right? it became from a, mm-hmm. yeah, a, a slave revolt basically is what made it the free yep, city of successful Tyr. revolt. And then you've got the Neva character and the Rikus character, and they're, they're kind of running the show for a while. I've always found slavery revolting. <laughs> As it should be. Well, we felt that that would be, that was, you know, we, you know, we, I suppose the two primary, primary things to rebel against in the original uh, Dark Sun universe are, of course, the, the wanton destruction of the environment, and then the rampant abuse of slavery all over the place. And and most people who wanted to be good characters or or good gamers could line up against those factionally and and work against them. And even if they did so in sort of a you know the the Fifty Shades of Grey, if you will, um, <laughs> you, you could you could feel um, you could feel good about that at the end of your adventuring session. Let's not ever mention Fifty Shades of Grey and slavery in the same sentence. <laughs> okay, yeah, good point. <laughs> we can edit that out, right? Okay. Yes, <laughs> we'll fix that in post. <laughs> yeah, fix that in post, please. Um, something in clever uh, for uh, me. Thank you. I, I feel disgusting. I'm sorry, just the, pun. <laughs> the 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 pun is still hurting me so <laughs> all right now what about the gray what is the gray i'm sorry the gray daryl help me out here oh uh that was I, and i don't know if this was originally in the book that may be why uh tim's kind of blanking out but the gray was this barrier around oh, Athos right. that prevented you from getting to the ethereal or the astral right. planes and that's what cut off the access to the gods. And it's also one of the reasons why uh, Dark Sun's also one of the most isolated of all of the D&D campaigns. That's right. I don't, I don't think we called it the gray when we in the original design. So that's why I didn't rec- recognize the name. But we were creating that new universe in a larger um, environment where we knew Spelljammer was coming along and we knew that we were going to go back and visit the plane. So obviously the discussion was coming up. For all of the uh, game worlds, well, can you get from one to the other through the planes and or Spelljammer? And we kind of decided that because Dark Sun was so unique and strange, especially for not having gods and things like that, and that magic worked totally different, that we, we wanted to limit that crossover. So kind of... And it also kind of would have ruined uh, Dark Sun if there was a chance to escape the planet, because the whole idea yeah. is it's a harsh environment. Everyone would want to jump on the Spelljammer ship and get yeah. out. It, the, the, it would, yeah, it would, it would set up a means of escape. It would set up a means for these super powerful creatures of this universe to suddenly show up in other universes where there's nothing to counter them. And fiftieth uh, level exactly. dragons. Exactly, and we and we thought all of that would be. You know, something we would hate to have to answer for in the future. So the best thing to do was to to come up with reasons why you couldn't really uh, get to them via the planes or get to them via a spell jamming vessel. So it's a world so desolate that even spell jammer and planescape don't go there. <laughs> right. right. Well, there were uh, and this was during second editions era where everything was crossing over with everything else. Right. Like Vecna was showing up in. Uh, and this was a little bit later, so it's probably after your time. But Vecna was showing up in Planescape and in Spelljammer and Ravenloft. Right. And um, yeah, that, once that genie was out of the bottle, were, there was no putting it back in. So it was all over the but place. But no, there were, there were two crossovers that are canon uh, during the TSR era. Number one, uh, Kalenday got pulled to Ravenloft right. for a while. And who's Kalenday? Uh, that's one of the city states. Okay. 
uh, I think it, uh, Lich leads that yeah, one. Yeah, I think, think so. But uh, number two, and this is my favorite one of them, was the Gith Yankee decided, hey, let's invade Dark no. Sun. <laughs> and they landed. And they noped right the hell out of there so hard they put up a big sign that said, do not come back. Wait, no, screw this. We don't even need a sign. Close this portal <laughs> behind us. Cement blocks. The When the Gith Yankee show up at your planet and say, yeah, this is way too hardcore for us. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. When you get kicked out of the Ravenloft Club yeah. <laughs> right. is when you know you're a bad place. <laughs> now, there's also the last C. What is the last C? <laughs> the last C is, again, a later uh, it, uh, a later invention, but we, we had alluded to it early that, you know, there has to be some place where there's still some freestanding water, right? Um, so in... in in that sense, we knew it was out there someplace, and then it got de- de- developed. I think mainly as a as a fourth edition location, isn't that correct? Well, no, there was a second edition uh, source book on it that uh, uh, for my readings on Athis.org, mm-hmm. Which, if you're interested in Dark Sun, definitely go to Athis.org. Yeah, it is the unofficial official website for Dark Sun at this point in time. It uh, Wizards of the Coast has kind of given them their blessing as the official fan yeah, site. Yeah, that's Bob but... site, and he does a great job with that. Yeah, and there's a lot of great information on there, and yeah, that's this. one of the reasons why, if I come up ignorant, uh, it's because I didn't have time <laughs> to read all the awesome stuff on that Athos. site. org. Yep, uh, but uh, looking on there, uh, one of the things about the Lost Sea in the second edition book is a lot of people kind of push that to the side and stick it in the bottom drawer and try to forget it exists. Because, again, like I was talking about, the Mind Lords and the Happy Topia. Who are the Mind Lords? That place is. The Mind Lords, as I understand it, are these psionic beings that have existed for about 9,000 years. And because they're so old at this point in time, they've got dementia. And they're kind of a little bit loopy. And they want everyone to be happy. You're not happy, citizen. Let me psionically erase your mind to make you happy because you're going to be happy. Yeah, that, I'm not. Why are you not happy? Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and but a lot of people have kind of that uh, on the TV Trump's website. It's actually listed as uh, fan and discontinuity, where basically the fans kind of like, let's put this in a drawer and close the drawer and lock the drawer and drop that in the Marianas trench and not talk about it <laughs> well, again. Let me ask you a question for Tim really quick. Um, so you talked about how this collaboration between you and Brom really pulled off this awesome, you know, yeah. great environment. I'm curious mm-hmm. because at the same time, there was also Planescape being developed. Yeah. Did this, did the success of Dark Sun, did that influence the, uh, the collaboration with Tony DiTerlizzi over on Planescape? I would say decidedly yes. I think it opened up a whole new relationship between designers and artists that, to a certain extent, has really been a sea change in in how that whole relationship works and everything at TSR going forward. Planescape was the next big thing that came out, and if you take a look at its its wonderful art and trade dress and whatnot, again, it's a it's a whole family of of gaming products that all look like they belong together. It's got right. it's it's one where we let Tony D and all of the graphics people um, working on it really stretch their legs and do something that was way off the beaten path. And, and those are, you know, if you look to some of those covers, they're so radically different in, in approach 
to anything that had gone before that if, if they'd have been proposed as here's a cover for a, a late 80s Forgotten Realms game book, it, the, the painting would have been rejected. But, but because it was, it was so well thought out and, and, and choreographed over a whole series of products, and it was just wonderful. Now, we've had a guy on our show before um, mm-hmm. who is uh, credited with working on Dark Sun as well, mm-hmm. Rich Baker. Sure. Rich did a lot of great work. I, he, he, uh, you know, he does a lot of novels um, now, a designer in the day, and uh, his work, especially on the Silt, he did the Silt Sea stuff, I think. Did he? Now I'm, now I'm getting confused. Boy, this stuff is so long ago. <laughs> I just, but, uh, just letting you know, he's been on the show before, so we yeah. we all we are a big fan of of him, and we're it's cool that he worked on on uh, Dark Sun as well. Yeah, he did a lot of stuff um, on on that, and he was always a very um, down to earth kind of designer. Whenever I would work with Rich, he seemed to be a guy that could always keep in his head that not only are we writing something that's just art to be read and enjoyed, but that ultimately somebody has to sit down and play this thing. <laughs> and, and if, if I could take, you know, another stab at most of the work that I was ever involved with at TSR in those days, um, I would try to ramp that up a little more. If you take uh, some of our best stuff that we ever put out, I mean, if you read the Al Kadim book, for instance, that Jeff yeah. Grubb wrote, big um, fan of that one, man, that's, that stuff is, is just splendidly written and, and it's just a great read. But in hindsight, man, I'm, what do you do with it? Figured out how yeah. to play it. <laughs> what do you do um, with it? Yeah, yeah. And and we all could have taken a lesson there. And Rich seemed to be a guy who who kind of got that right away. And and he's just a a fun fellow to work with at the same time. So now for the listeners, you know, we mm-hmm. spent a long time talking about Dark Sun, and it is awesome. It is absolutely brilliant. But at the same time, it has a spiritual successor that right. you you launched, as we said a year ago, and that's called Dragon Kings. So if you love Athos and you love Dark Sun. What is gonna, you know what why what is going to take us over to Dragon Kings? Tell us about you know how that's the spiritual successor. Um, my my thought there to create Dragon Kings as a spiritual successor to Dark Sun was uh, first obviously you know as I said before we had all of us in design who had done stuff on Dark Sun had a lot more ideas of things to do in that sort of an environment. So if I if I created a thematically similar environment, I could touch on a lot of those those ideas. So, so a lot of the heavy themes are still there in uh, the dragon Kings environment. You're still talking about a world that is very much in decline though for, for markedly different reasons, but you still got a world where the environment itself is very harsh, where the, the effort it takes to get by from day to day is very difficult, where your enemies are many and the environment itself is an adversary that you have to confront all of the time. From that, we also have a thematic kind of art look. This is still very much a desert kind of environment. So uh, there's still very much reason to make weapons out of different elements and whatnot than, than you would in a standard fantasy game. Uh, that's why I could get back together with Brom and he could do the cover and it would, it would look kind of thematically similar. And the cover is very awesome. Yeah, I, I think he just, you know, obviously one of the premier artists uh, in the fantasy genre right now. And every time I get a chance to work with Brahm, I, I definitely step up to the plate. So fans of Dark Sun should go check out Dragon Kings because it is the same general feel, the same general tone, right? Correct. But obviously, in, in every other facet, we got whole new situations, whole new characters, whole new reasons to be on the side of good or on the side of evil, whole new races and, and, and uh, uh, you know, 
magic is still bizarre and difficult to cast, but for whole new reasons. And, and uh, you know, it gives me a whole new playground in which to, uh, and, and to, to stretch my legs with uh, old concepts in new places. And, and I've had a lot of fun with it so far. It's a dark sun feel in a brand new world. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. All right. Uh, let's. Uh, I'm checking it out right now. We're getting close to the end of our show here, so I'm going to have to ask uh, folks for final thoughts. And I can sense Daryl just waiting. He's coiled like a he's 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 coiled up like a cobra, ready to strike. Daryl, uh, why don't you give us your final thoughts on Dark Sun? Like I said, my experience in Dark Sun is mostly up. Uh, I it's actually a campaign campaign I didn't get to actually play in. I made a character where. In 4th edition D&D, uh, before 5th edition had come out, uh, a friend of mine was running a campaign, and they had run up to 10th level, and so I made a 10th level character who was an Avenger, because I wanted to play an Avenger so bad, which, if you know, 4th edition was a divine class, and there are no gods. So I reskinned the entire Avenger class to have all his abilities make sense just so I could play in Dark Sun, and then I never got to play in oh, the no. campaign. But... <laughs> But I have, but I have gotten to play a couple of fourth edition uh, games here and there uh, in Dark Sun. I've run one, and oh my god, it is! I want to s- just smack fifteen-year-old me for dismissing the setting <laughs> because I don't like that shooting worms and stuff. No, the setting is so much fun. There is so much to explore in the world. And uh, just like at the when we get to the end of every single one of these recordings for our campaign setting series, I want to run a Dark Sun campaign right now. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> uh, Brandon, why don't you give us your final thoughts? Uh, final thoughts. Uh, I agree with Daryl wholeheartedly. I would love to grab like five people off the street and be like, hey, here's Dark Sun. We're playing it, guys. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, uh, Brandon, I'm in, (laughs) well, there's two, right? Um, (laughs) one thing that I've been kind of holding off on asking, but was it intentional in the original like concepts and designs that you wanted to make a world where the players were forced to rely upon themselves and not so much, you know, their gods or magic, the, the environment, the magic items and whatnot. Was that an original like core concept that you were designing around, or was it just something that simply evolved through iteration? I think it was a core concept in, in as much as that's just the nature of a pulp adventurer. We, we drew from pulp sources, you know, primarily on inspiration where th- there were, where there weren't these wheelbarrows full of magical items that people could just grab and use all the time that, that, uh, um, that there wasn't necessarily a, a, an overarching godlike presence that's just kind of watching over what you're doing, and you can appeal to it at any moment to save your butt. Um, right. You know, these things just didn't exist in, in that kind of of a setting, so that they they never evolved uh, in the Dark Sun setting either. So it's kind of a uh, uh, systematic, if you will. I see, and uh, I will say, I am definitely looking into getting Dragon Kings right now. Cool. When are you going to make that available, boss? (laughs) You can get the PDFs of it right now. Just go to dragonkingsproject.com. It'll lead you the way to get uh, all of the PDF stuff right away. And uh, unless uh, uh, my guys at Studio 2 are are completely off the mark, you know, I'm I'm within 30 days of having that stuff and mailing it out to everybody, and then we'll have it in stores. So really looking forward to that. It's downloading right now, and we will have, <laughs> and we will have uh, links in the show notes for those of you who want to. Okay, uh, Tim, 
you're the designer. Give us mm-hmm. your final thoughts on Dark Sun. Well, it's always nice to get, you know, the perspective of, of guys like you who want to, you know, sit down and kind of chat about, um, about things that I've worked on in the past, including Dark Sun. And, you know, every time I kind of reexamine, you know, decisions that I made, uh, and, you know, whatever you create, at least I find whatever I create, I can always think, well, you know, I wish I'd have done this or I wish I'd have done that. And uh, so often it exposes to me as I think through the details of how I came to this decision or that decision. Oh, you know, if we'd only done this, if we'd only had a little more art to show the different desert landscapes, or if we'd have only focused a little more on the details of actually playing uh, this out as an adventure, uh, you know, on the tabletop. But but in the final analysis, it's you know you can look back and you know it's it's fun for me to see that over a long period of time people have have enjoyed something that I got to create. And uh, had a lot of fun with it, and uh, uh, it's just it's just always a really enriching experience, and I'm, and I'm glad I get a chance to uh, to talk with uh, guys like you and 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 uh, resurface a lot of that old thinking. It's it's always fun for me. That's awesome, Ross. What are your final thoughts? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> As the host, I get to ask myself questions all the time. It's kind of weird. Uh, Tim, uh, first of all, on behalf of Daryl, myself, and Brandon, uh, thank you very much for joining us because. It's great to have a designer talk to us about his his creation this way. My pleasure. Uh, Thank you. Secondly, my final thoughts on, on Dark Sun, there's really so much more that we, you know, we, we allocate two hours to the show, but there's just so much more to talk about, really. Uh, one of the things I thought was really innovative was the presentation of adventures in Dark Sun was with these interesting flip books mm-hmm. that you could flip. You could actually, it was built uh, physically so that you could show the players one side of it, and then the other side of it was for the GM. And every single uh, page on that flip was like that. It was really uh, an interesting and innovative approach to just having something at the table, a tool to kind of help tell the story. Uh, you remember that, don't you, Tim? Those those flip books. Uh, oh, yeah. absolutely. Yep. Was that your idea? We were pioneering that. It, it, you know, I, I was certainly an advocate for it. We were exploring. Um, we felt we had such terrific art to share, and such an interesting new sort of look to convey that we wanted to take the art out of the adventure book that was traditionally a book that only the dungeon master got to see and get it out there so that all the players could enjoy it as the game is going on. So we worked with our manufacturing uh, bookmaking partners and with several different ideas. The flip book was, was presented and we did some play testing around with that and got um, a generally, uh, you know, everybody who got those things, uh, uh, tended to enjoy the experience. We got a lot of positive feedback. Uh, But as with so many good innovations, the downside to that was that those came in sort of a a, a fold-up little box that held the whole set together. And those boxes did not fare well in a store setting. They tended to get crushed. Yeah, they did. And and, and that, you know, that that made them look kind of crummy on the shelf. And, And people, you know, so we had to eventually abandon that, but it was really just for a a marketing and merchandising reason. The, uh, the experience itself, we always got really nice feedback off of that. And it was a fun way to write an adventure as well. So that right. the piece facing the dungeon master was the, the text you needed for the, uh, art and stuff that was being displayed on the other side that the, that the players could see a lot of fun. Enjoyed that. So, uh, like I said, just continuing with my final thoughts, I love the idea of the survival elements. Mm-hmm. I, I think that really changed the whole paradigm of adventuring is it, it, it added this whole new, uh, aspect to it. My friend uh, and roommate, Sean Patrick Fan, and he played Dark Sun very recently, actually. And he just 
came home just bubbling about, oh, I played a, a, I played, I played a cleric of, of water. <laughs> and I, I was so important because I could, you know, I had all these spells <laughs> set aside that just helped us survive. He, he was creating water and purifying water and creating food. Nice. And just he was the reason that his group made it through the desert. And he was just so happy about that. He was like, nice. man. It's like I've never played a cleric like this where I'm just vital to this actual survival beyond, you know, healing hit points. Right. And he he adored that. And that does bring up something that I want to point out to people who are wanting to, after listening to the show, they really want to run a Dark Sun game. Pay attention to what spells can do and what magic items can do. Because things as simple as a bag of holding or a decanter of water oh my God. or uh, everlasting rations, those sort of things can break Dark Sun. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, just just quick, get back to my final thoughts here. Um, really, I think Dark Sun is, again, one of those, one of the most imaginative and unusual settings uh, that came out during its time period. Uh, probably if you look back over the game settings and find like the really out there ones it was unusual to find this coming from tsr coming from the source because they had been so tied to that european uh paradigm that this was so this was a, a sea change as he likes to say you know it was very different and then, of course followed by, by planescape which was again a very big difference um, which is great so i loved it and I'm, I'm glad i got to play the few times that i had to play in it i enjoyed it i'm glad i got to play, you know to sort of explore it a little bit and i want to see more so those are my final thoughts Okay, uh, very last thing. Let's ask our guests. Um, Brandon, last time for you. Mm-hmm. Where can we find more about you on the internets? You can find more about me at, uh, <laughs> unfortunately, my uh, Twitch channel is now defunct. Oh, no. Yes. Uh, C&D went that far because of the Amazon thing with Aww. Twitch. Yes. Those so, unfor- oh, no. unfortunately, I do not have a Twitch channel anymore. But... You can definitely find me at, or excuse me, GamerTimer.org slash about. And you might be able to see more Twitch goodness from Brandon at our Twitch channel as Gamers Tavern Show. So twitch.tv slash Gamers Tavern Show. Tim, where can we find out more about you and what you're up to on the internets? Uh, most of my efforts right now are focused on um, the whole Dragon Kings project. So everything at DragonKingsProject.com. You can find out quite a bit about what I'm up to. Also, uh, I'm not sure who does it, but somebody created a Wikipedia page for me, so you can just find out something <laughs> about me there. And it's more or less accurate, so that's good for me. <laughs> Are there any conventions you're going to in the near future? Uh, let's see. I, you know, I've just got uh, a couple of invites that uh, I'm looking at uh, going to Game Fest in uh, Denver. What? To, well, yeah. I'm in Denver. Oh, yeah. I am in, if you come to Denver, I am totally. We're gonna we're gonna go out and have a beer. We're gonna, it's gonna happen. We're gonna hook up. Yeah, I just I, I was just talking to well, the I guys hear about that. I, I hear you're married, so hooking up may be out of the question. <laughs> all true. All true. Okay. And then uh, uh, there's a. Uh, I'm trying to get to a convention in Cologne, Germany, because uh, Ulysses Spiele is doing the German translation of uh, Dragon Kings. Sweet. Uh, I also have, you know, this is crazy because I also lined up French, Russian and Polish and a a company, a Spanish company just got in touch with me today. They want to translate it. So uh, I'm very pleased with the, you know, the overall success of that, that launch and that people are responding to it and seeing that the, you know, it's a book that they want to get involved with. So anyway, it's a lot of fun. 
Well, if you get come to Denver, I'll show you a copy of Accursed, and we'll talk about that, too. All so. right. Hey, sounds good. Uh, sounds speak, good. Speaking of conventions, uh, we're going to be in Houston for Comic Palooza, which is uh, going to be in the weekend of May 22nd. Yeah, guess what? <laughs> guess, guess what? It'll be my 40th birthday that weekend. Ooh. So we're going to have a hell of a time in, in Houston. Come join us if you can. You know, you know the uh, William Thrasher and the Skirmisher Publishing guys are going to have one hell of a party. So, oh, gosh. all right. And until next time, uh, once once one more time, uh, let's give a big you know thanks from the Gamers Tavern to uh, Tim Brown for putting up with us talking about Dark Sun for two hours. <laughs> hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks a lot. And uh, until next time, may all your hits be crits. Finding the correct contact lenses and the perfect frames for the fashionably nerdtastic can be a hassle in the big box stores. So that's why I use AC Lens. From the most fashionable frames and hard-to-find prescription contact lenses to the perfect contacts for your next cosplay, AC Lens has all the bases covered at your fingertips without the hassle of leaving the game table. Just go to gamerstavern.org slash AC Lens, L-E-N-S. They have amazing offers, including up to $300 in savings for a year's supply of contact lenses and with a 100% satisfaction guarantee, what's not to like? There's even a special deal for Gamers Tavern listeners, $5 off any contact lens order of $50 or more. They have everything you need to keep your eyes healthy and happy. So check out GamersTavern.org slash ACLens today for all your eye care needs.